Thank you, Finn and Ben. Well, often when I'm uh, preparing a sermon and working on the text, my mind strangely drifts towards a Marvel movie. Um, those thoughts don't often make it into a sermon, but tonight they do. Uh, the movie is X-Men Last Stand, the scene, the grand finale, where everything and everyone around Jean Grey is coming apart in her presence. Everything is disintegrating in her terrifying power. But if you've seen any of the X-Men movies, you'll understand that Jean Grey isn't always this terrifying. She's actually really lovely, normally, most of the time. And she accommodates her power in order to really serve others kindly. But when she reveals her power, no one can stand in her presence without coming apart. That's why everyone uh, of all the mutants in the X-Men, all these mutants with such incredible powers are all taking steps back apart from Wolverine in the image. Now that scene serves as a very mediocre illustration. You might have said you should have just left it on the cutting room floor, Pastor. Uh, but it is a mediocre illustration of what we find in our passage today. The power of God. Manifesting in ways that underline just how terrifyingly holy and gloriously great he is. It's the kind of power that makes even his own people ask, the question in chapter 6, verse 20, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Now, the answer to that question is in two points and in a third point of application. And let's, uh, let's break it down and let's answer this. The first answer to this question from the text is that no rival God can stand. No rival God can stand. Well, last week we saw that, the, uh, that God let the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, this seat of his presence, and this place for Israel's atonement. He, he let them capture the Ark of the Covenant because, well, Israel had used God as a waiter, uh, and they had also stolen his glory. Now, Hannah had warned us back in chapter 2, uh, that there is no one holy like God, and that those who oppose the Lord will be broken. And we saw last week that Eli fell over and broke, and God upheld his holiness by taking his glory elsewhere, even into Philistine territory. Uh, what happened next is that the ark of God was carried into the Philistine city of Ashdod, and into the temple of Dagon, a false god. And if you look with me at verses 1 and 2, you see that Dagon is very much introduced here as God's rival. Everything about these first two verses says that the Philistines viewed Dagon as a superior god to Yahweh. And when you see the word Lord in the passage, in capital letters, they're using the name that God gave to his people Israel in the Exodus. But imagine this, here they are, the victorious Philistines, they are carrying the Ark of God like a trophy, a war trophy, into Dagon's temple. No doubt through clouds of incense burnt to Dagon, amid songs of praise to Dagon's power and glory. Verse 2, they set it 
beside him, beside Dagon. Notice the positioning. The placement is a statement. To polytheistic Philistines, the God of Israel was a lesser God. Now in subjection to Dagon, the greater God. And I'm sure they had a really wonderful time in that worship service. But the next day, maybe they got up to celebrate a little bit more. But we find in verses 3 to 5 that Dagon is found on his face the first time. And then Dagon is found on his face in pieces the next time before the presence of God. Look with me again at verse 3. See for yourself. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And again, notice the positioning. The placement is a statement. Now the ark that had been placed beside Dagon, but now Dagon is before the ark himself now in a posture of submission. He is on his face. Now at that, the Philistines should have just done the very same and realized what they were dealing with, but they don't, do they? Verse 3b, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. He is so powerless, he needs his worshippers in order to stand them up. But they shouldn't have bothered because the very next day, Dagon was on his face before the ark again, but this time verse 4 says his head and his hands had been broken off. Now the overall point, is unmistakable. Dagon is defeated. He is a defeated God. Without his head, unable to think, without his hands, unable to act. In fact, the taking off of the head was a sign of complete and total victory. And he won't be the only one to lose his head in 1 Samuel. But the point is, God is underlining on his very own that he is victorious And that he is supreme over any other god. Yahweh even triumphs in the temple of his rival. And that's because no rival god can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy god. But not that the Philistines actually get it. Do you notice what they do in verse 5? Verse 5 just underlines how the hold that this idol has on them, when instead of falling on their face before God, they just kind of create this weird ritual to remember that Dagon is a loser. It's so weird. They should have chopped him up for firewood. But now, after a wee trip to B&Q and a bit of DIY, Dagon will be just fine and we can worship him again tomorrow. Now, what should we do with our idols in the in the light of verses 1 to 5, because there is a lesson in this for us, when we consider the supremacy of God compared to all other idols, the first thing we need to do is get rid of our idols. Now you say, well, I'm not an idolater. I'm not bowing down to kind of gold objects on my mantelpiece or anything like, or buying Dagon flat packs from home base. That's a good thing, but that does not mean that we're not idolaters. Not when you take the definition of idolatry or of an idol to be anything we worship, love, and serve in place of God. Now, by that definition, um, that certainly includes deities of other religions, but it can include things like money, sex, power, career, kids, anything really. Whatever we set up as a rival to God or consider superior to God. Uh, that is an idol. 
And this text says loud and clear to all of us that no rival can stand in the presence of the Lord Yahweh, this holy God. No idol can save us, so get rid of them. As we read in the first of the Ten Commandments, the Lord himself saying, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's not a suggestion. The second thing we should do is worship God and God alone. In Isaiah 46, uh, 9 and 10, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Anyone who's grown up with Colin Buchanan songs now, that verse is almost ruined because you've got these little songs going on in your head now. But it's such an important verse for us. It says, only God is worthy of our worship. Only God is worthy of our heart's devotion and our life's service. Then what is it that Jesus said when the devil in the wilderness pointed to all the kingdoms of the world and says, worship me and it'll all be yours. He replied, worship the Lord your gods and serve him only. So how do we do that? Well, Romans 12, 1 tells us how we do that. It says that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. To live as believers in the day-to-day -day things of life, living for him, not for ourselves, praising him, him above all others, and living for his glory. No rival God can stand. So get rid of those idols and worship God and God alone. Now we see in the passage that Dagon's hands are cut off. He is powerless. But the Lord's hand is very much intact and it features an awful lot in the following section. It's there in verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, and then in chapter 6 it's in verse 3, 5, 9, and 19. And how is that hand described throughout? Heavy. Heavy. Remember what we talked about last time? Heavy being a word that essentially means glorious. But in what way? Well, this section shows us that this entire, this entire section shows us that God's glory is in fact so heavy, so weighty, that not only can no rival God stand, but no sinful person can stand either. And we see that in two groups of people. Those who are not God's people and even those who are. So in, in chapter 5, verse 6 to 6, 12, um, we have a section that tells us that no one from outside of God's people can bear the holy presence of God. Now, verses 6 to 12 tell us that the heavy hand of God was felt by the Philistines in their own territory. And we have three of the five Philistine territories uh, included in this passage. In Ashdod, where Dagon's temple was, the heavy hand of God brought devastation and affliction. That's what you see in verses 6 to 8. It brought tumors. Now, that doesn't mean cancer in the original language. The Hebrew word actually just means boil or swollen mound of tissue. And so the golden tumors and golden rats mentioned later lead many commentators to think that this is some form of bubonic plague. Um, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. The thing that matters is what's causing it. It's the heavy hand of God. It is the presence of God 
by virtue of the ark being in Ashdod that is causing this. That's why all the rulers of the Philistines get together uh, and say, get rid of the ark. Okay, so they very quickly understand what's going on. I don't know how much the people of Gath uh, had a say in this, but they decide, verse 8 to 10, send it to Gath. But the hand of God was against that city in the very same way that it was against Ashdod. And in great panic, the people of Gath said, get rid of this ark. Then in verses 11 to 12, you see they send it to this city called Ekron. And the Ekronians, I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's what I'm going to say. They say, oh, hold it right there. The God of Israel is bringing absolute devastation and death upon us. By virtue of wherever this ark goes, death and devastation accompany it. It's bringing every single city that it's been into its knees, and we're really not happy about it being brought here. That's why in verse 11, you see, again, the patterns emerging. Send the ark of Israel away. But they also add, let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. Okay, so there's the first time we get this uh, suggestion that they shouldn't just transfer it to another uh, Philistine city, but send it home. And that's what they decide to do. And when they do, as we see in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 6, the hand of God was lifted from the Philistines. But I guess it's not really for the reasons that they think. I mean, firstly, they thought that the heavy hand of God was lifted because they sent the ark back with a guilt offering. That's what we see them as these uh, priests and diviners get together. What are we going to do here? The reason why they're deliberating over this, by the way, is that they've already associated, associated the ark of the covenant with a heavy hand of God's glory. So they're clearly not thinking we can just, we can just chuck this in the sea or just take it to the recycling center or something like that. We need to handle this with care or else these plagues could just continue. So they send a guilt offering. Now a guilt offering is just a way of saying sorry. Sorry for all the trouble, sorry for the Dagon thing, no hard feelings, etc. And it includes this uh, thing of two cows plus their own wee ark with five golden tumors and five golden rats, one for each of the five Philistine cities. It's really handy when the explanation for something absolutely obscure is included in the text, isn't it? Uh, that's very, very helpful because I didn't know how I was going to explain the rats. But verse 5 says, this is how they give glory to Israel's God. In other words, even people who do not believe that Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, is the only God. They are seeking in some way, in their polytheistic way, multiple God way, of acknowledging his weightiness, right? His glory. Now, the thing I want you to realize here, if you, if you read this passage in view of Israel's history in the past, there should be a few little echoes coming. A few similarities where you think, I've kind of read something a little bit like this before. And we should, because it's about the Exodus, really. It's not a harebrained idea from the Philistine think tank. Verse 6 tells us it's informed by the Exodus. Where uh, God's affliction of Egypt was relieved when they did what? Sent the people away with gifts. Okay? Now that's what they do here, but... 
what I'm, as I'm saying that, I don't want us to be too impressed with that. Uh, the Philistines are not theologians acting in faith. They're gamblers hedging their bets. It is a polytheistic attempt to pacify Yahweh. They are hopeful that he will lift his hand, but they're not even sure this is all down to his hand in some way, even though they kind of say, well, let's just give him glory and say sorry, but actually let's double check to see whether or not it's really him. Hence the whole thing with the cow cart experiment. I mean, how weird is that as well? So they double check that this is God's heavy hand by doing this cow thing. Okay, here's what they do. Hook up the cart, carrying the ark to, to uh, and our wee gift of five tumors and five rats, golden ones, to two cows who've never worn a harness or been paired up to plow, and two cows who have milk-dependent calves of their own tied up in a pen, and uh, let's see if this is really from God's. Now, the odds with this little experiment, you have to understand, are absolutely stacked against these cows taking even one turn, one step towards Israel. They will kick and buck against the harness because they've never, ever worn one. And they will never, ever leave their calves. It would go against their instincts. Now look at verse 12 with me of chapter 6. The cows went straight towards Beth Shemesh, which is in Israel, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The Lord is driving his presence home so that the Philistines could know that it wasn't just a coincidental outbreak. It was the heavy hand of God and they should actually give him way more glory than they have just suggested. They could not bear his presence for no sinful person from outside of God's people can stand in the presence of God. Now, that would go for you, friend, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. The hand of God is still heavy on those who do not believe in him. And while he still at times brings affliction to wake us up from our godless slumber in order to point to the salvation that he holds out to us, his heavy hand is still very clearly seen mostly in society's self-gratification. Romans chapter 1 says that when people exchange the glory of God for something else, that's called idolatry, he gives it to them. He gives them what they ask for. He gives them what they desire in their hearts. So he gives them over, as Romans 1 says, to the shameful lusts they choose in preference to him. Knowing just how badly that will go for that people, that society, that nation. So no matter what any society, even like our own, would call progressivism, God says, no, it's wrath. 
It's my heavy hand. And my prayer is that you will, like the Philistines, recognize the heavy hand of God and find that weight of judgment lifted, not through any gift that you can offer of your own, but through the gift that he himself offered you. The gift of his son, Jesus Christ, offered on our behalf as a sacrifice of atonement to make you who were enemies with God, friends with God. And the cost of that atonement, the cost of that reconciliation is the blood of his one and only son. He died for you that you might be his friend and that this heavy hand might be lifted and you can truly behold his glory in the person of his son. Why don't you ask the person who brought you about that or talk to me at the door afterwards or Finn. And we'd love to talk this through with you. There's more to be said, but our time's limited. What we see in the passage, though, is it wasn't just the Philistines who needed to learn this lesson that no sinful person can stand in the presence of God. God's people still needed to learn that lesson too because they still think too lightly of even the God that they know. That's why in verses 13 through to 7-2, we find that no one among God's sinful people can bear the holy presence of God either. Look with me at verses 13 to 21. It's a big section, but it tells us that the heavy hand of God was felt even by the Israelites in Beth Shemesh. Okay, they were obviously overjoyed. Can you imagine them as they're plowing their fields and bringing in the harvest and so on and here, what is that cow noise? Who's lowing and looking up and seeing these these cows walking very straight, not going to the left or to the right, and seeing the box on the back of it, seeing the Ark of the Covenant. Can you imagine what that would have been like for the people of Beth Shemesh? They were probably rubbing their eyes. It would have been a glorious thing for them to see. And they were overjoyed as they received it. But the text shows us that they just forgot about reverence. They made several careless mistakes that defied God's holiness. They sacrificed cows instead of bulls, verse 14. Verse 15, they showcased the ark on a big rock instead of covering it. Verse 19, they look inside the ark. These are several, not just careless mistakes, but transgressions of God's law. Such irreverence happens when we think lightly of God. But verse 19, God upholds his glory, his holiness, once again, God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And what did the people call it? A heavy blow. A heavy blow, verse 19. The word blow could actually be translated plague. And then ask verse 20, our key question for tonight. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord Yahweh, this holy God. How, do you understand the question? How can we get near to him in worship when his very holiness is a threat to us? Who can stand? No one is the answer. Isaiah had a vision of God and cried out 
Woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He sees something, a mere vision of God and says, I'm coming apart. John the Apostle caught up into the presence of the terrifyingly glorious presence of Jesus Christ blazing like the sun in his glory and he says I fell at his feet as though dead even when the glory of the blistering glory of Jesus was veiled in flesh when he came in person even the the tiniest slither the sneakiest peak of his glory led many to be afraid So the people of the Gerizines pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. Peter, when he first meets Jesus, says, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And in John 18, even the mighty detachment of soldiers in Gethsemane arriving to arrest Jesus and take him to his his trial, at the sound of Jesus' name, drew back and fell to the ground. There is no question about where power and glory lies in any of these passages. And the question we're left with then is that if prophets were in danger of falling apart and apostles were repelled in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, how is it possible that they did draw near? How come they weren't completely undone? And how can we draw near Well, the only way to stand in the presence of a God this holy, this heavy, this glorious is to be holy as he is. By our own efforts and merits, it's utterly impossible. But incredibly And graciously and mercifully, God himself makes provision for us. And the answer to their question, the answer to our question tonight is, only in Christ can we stand in the presence of a holy God. For Christ died for our sins to bring us to God. Uh, On the cross, the heavy hand of God was on him. As Isaiah 53 tells us, he was struck by God. And it was the Lord's will to crush him, not for anything he had done, but for the things that we had done. He took the punishment, the wrath that we deserve for our sin on himself, and by doing so, provided the very thing we needed to stand in the presence of this holy, holy, holy God's holiness. As Hebrews 10.10 says, oh, memorize this verse, friends. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Right, Charlotte Chapel, you're just a little bit too quiet about this. That is glorious. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that means that we can come into his presence. Not 
without reverence. We need to come with reverence, but freely, with confidence, knowing that we, because of Jesus, will not be crushed by his heavy, glorious hand. No, indeed, we are helped by that hand. As Hebrews 10 says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, knowing you will not come apart when you do. You will not disintegrate when you do. You won't come undone because he died so we could draw near now in reverence and on the day to come when the heavy hand of his glory and the trampling foot of his wrath will be seen unmistakably, globally. So draw near. Come into his presence and do it with others. Because this is the way we spur one another on to keep on doing so, reminding each other of this glorious salvation that we have, and we keep doing it until the day we are in his presence in the new creation. As Hebrews 10 continues, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So who can stand in the presence of this Lord? Yahweh, this holy God. No rival can stand, get rid of them. No sinful human can stand, we need to face up to that. Only in Christ can you stand. So believe in him, love him, and live for him. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, God of glory, sinful people like us ought to be terrified and repelled because of your glory and greatness, your matchlessness, your supremacy. And together with the realization of our own sinfulness, our unholiness, with the log in our minds of our iniquities and our transgressions, the ways in which we have rebelled against your authority and defied your law. We deserve to be obliterated, and yet in Christ and in Christ alone we come, drawing near with glad and thankful hearts for this great salvation that we have in him. Thank you for solving by your grace 
this incredibly impossible problem from our perspective. But thank you that with you, in the holiness of your love and your mercy, you have made it known. And we rejoice. And today are glad to say, you are great. You are glorious. And we love you and thank you for this. Hear our prayers. We offer them in the name of your Son, uh, our Savior. Amen.